It only took six years, but now the Homeland Security Department has new regulations covering how contractors must handle CUI, controlled unclassified information. Better get ready. They go into effect later this month. Here with what you need to prepare, Holland and Knight attorney Eric Crucius. Eric, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. And I guess these rules have been a long time in preparation, but the surprising thing about them is everyone expected them to be connected to the standards developed by NIST under 800-171 special publication, which is in the midst of revision right now. But that's not really the case, is it? No. DHS went in a completely different direction. They explain why in the rules they've done that. But they're really focusing on the standards that they've been developing and have developed. So the interesting thing is this regulation is a little new where it's doing something that the first CMMC rule did and also the rule about vaccine mandates did, and it's pointing to a website. And I don't know if that's consistent with the Administrative Procedures Act. We'll see if somebody wants to argue that in court. But it points to a website, and the website will have all the standards that contractors have to comply with. And DHS says in the lead-up to the rule in the document that they put out that those standards are currently undergoing revision. So a contractor conceivably will have to comply with a different standard from one day to the next because the standards are being revised right now. But you're right. They went on to a different direction, didn't use 800-171, which was a little surprising. Well, did they use standard rulemaking? That is to say, did they get comments? Did they get back with comments? I mean, over six years, some of the comments are probably obsolete. So in that sense, they did follow the Administrative Procedures Act. Yes. They went through the whole notice and comment period, and they got comments. And you're right, some of the comments were obsolete. The thing that I'm kind of concerned about is that the rule is going to change over time without going through notice and comment period because that website is going to link to standards that change. So contractors who have requirements right now, those requirements could be different next month or next year because the link to the website, the standards on that website will change. Sounds like that leaves contractors open to a little bit of capriciousness then, if that's the case. Well, you sent this in, but guess what? It changed since you sent in your proposal. Sorry. Right, right. And it would be interesting to see kind of how that juxtapose works and how DHS handles that and if it varies between contracting officer to contracting officer. And all that combined with the, like you mentioned, the new 800-171 standard coming out, there's a lot going on for contractors to look at right now. And so what standards does it reference? Homeland Security's specific handling of data standards then, right? Right. There are specific uh, standards that they mentioned that are on their website, security directives 11042.1, and 11056.1. And really, there's about a dozen other different standards that contractors need to be aware of. And has anyone compared them to NIST at all? Do they have any consonance with what NIST is doing or what's out there now? Not that I've seen. And that's a great weekend project, so I'll put that on my list to do (laughs) because I've wanted to do that with the VA regulations also, which also don't use 800-171 as the baseline standard. So um, Yeah, I've seen that in other domains of acquisition where agencies will add their own little embellishment to the FAR. Right. You already have the DFAR, but that's well understood. But then there's the energy FAR or the EPA FAR and the DHS FAR. It gets to be kind of tough navigating for contractors. Right. And if you remember, years ago, the FAR was created to create this one standard across the government. So you would need government contracts, lawyers to figure out what to do. And then each agency went and did its own thing anyway. And I think we're seeing the same thing with cybersecurity here, where the FAR Council has been a little bit slow in putting out a standard that works across the government for controlled unclassified information. DOD has been slow in rolling out CMMC. So 
know, filling the void are these other agencies like DHS and the VA with their own standards because they recognize that they need to protect their information and need to do it right now. And what do these rules actually ask contractors to do in general? They all kind of follow a similar formula. They ask contractors to buy by certain standards, security standards. They also ask contractors to respond and to make them aware of cybersecurity incidents. The definition of a cybersecurity incident in the DHS rules is pretty broad. It includes not following certain policies, spillage internally in, in the contractor, uh, where you know CUI goes from one part of the business to another where it's not supposed to be. And then employee, kind of employee onboarding. You know, if they're going to be handling certain kinds of information, they need to have training, and the agency needs to be aware if they're kind of let go, things like that. Sure. So there's, there's standard common themes that are in all these regulations, but they're all different. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at Holland and Knight. So in their solicitations and contracts, DHS will be requiring compliance with these standards. So contractors in their bids simply need to say, yes, we are in compliance with these. We are following these directives of the 4700 series, dot, dot, dot. Right, right. And contractors, by kind of taking on a contract with these regulations in them, will implicitly at least acknowledge that they are complying with these regulations. And DHS knows that this is not an inexpensive proposition for contractors, and they say that in the rule, that they recognize that this is going to be expensive, and they expect that that expense will be reflected in the price of these contracts to DHS. And you mentioned CMMC, the DOD program, which doesn't seem to be getting quite off the ground, the uh, Cybersecurity Model Maturity Certification Program. It's like a helicopter spinning, but it never quite leaves the (laughs) the tarmac there. (laughs) And that has third-party verification as part of that program, which says we can prove that we do these things because someone objective looked at us. There's nothing like that in these DHS rules. For the vast majority of companies, that is true. There's a small subset. If you are a contractor that is operating or running a federal system, you will have some kind of third-party verification that's required. Just because you brought up CMMC, I have to say something about it. But the really interesting thing about CMMC is DOD may require contractors to do a third-party certification even in advance of CMMC because the new NIST 800-171 has a control that requires third-party verification of systems. And the DFARS clause that implements 800-171 says that the version of NIST 800-171 that's applicable is the one at the time of the solicitation. So once that new 800-171 comes out, there's an argument to be made, unless DOD issues a class deviation, that all contractors, DOD contractors with CUI, will have to get a third-party certification. Yeah, so it's like CMMC by default almost. Right, exactly. And in delaying all of this till now, but yet coming out by DHS ahead of what DOD might or may not be doing, it sounds like each agency has been waiting on the other one to step out into this first. And DHS said, well, Screw it. We'll go first. (laughs) Right. And I kind of think like they're all kind of holding each other up a little bit for a while, and that's why it took six years. I mean, these rules are sophisticated and they're not easy, but six years is a long time, and I know they were working diligently on them, so it must be that they were trying to coordinate, and they're trying to see where the new FAR upcoming, whatever our upcoming FAR rules are, what direction they're going in, where DOD is going. And eventually, I think you said, I think you're exactly right. They said, we just got to do something. So in the meantime, right now, then, contractors need to develop almost boilerplate language that says, yes, we are doing this according to this rule. That's something they should be composing right now. Right. And they should be looking at the standards that DHS has right now, see if they're compliant. And for contractors that play across different agencies, it's really difficult because they have different standards for different CUI depending on which agency they're connected with. 
Right, because you said earlier the definitions of what comes under CUI differ from agency to agency. Right. So DOD uses the CUI registry, and DHS does to some extent. It uses parts of it, and it's not entirely clear whether it uses all of it. The general definitions are similar, but there are some nuance I think contractors should look at. Yeah, this does sound like a lot of manpower required to make sure that with each agency, and now DHS, you are following the clauses they want. Right. And I think each agency is really paying close attention because these rules are very important to them. Cybersecurity is really important, and they spent a lot of time issuing these regulations not to just have them ignored. Yeah, I mean, that's right. At the heart of all this, there is a cybersecurity problem, which everybody recognizes, but it seems like a Byzantine way of getting at it. Right. It would have been great if the FAR Council came out first and issued some regulations, and that enabled kind of the individual agencies to stand down. Now, DHS argues that these regulations are supplementary to uh, the CUI regs that may come out from the FAR Council because they cover different things. We'll have to wait and see if that's really the case. Attorney Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. 
AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot... And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that. But I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause, and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. 
it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.